Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. As we continue our study in the book of Isaiah, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 31, which is the end of the chapter. Before we do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His help with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word, we come to these words that are about You and Your coming and Your majesty, Your holiness, Your power and authority in all the earth. We come and we read these very plain words about You, and yet our minds are dancing all over the place and scattered to the furthest reaches of the universe. And so, Lord, we pray that you would settle our minds and our hearts as we gather together to read and understand and hear your word. We pray that you would change us through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I read through Isaiah chapter 40, there are lots and lots of places that we could go in the scriptures to kind of introduce this idea. But the one that stuck out to me was in Matthew chapter 14, and I'm going to just summarize it. You're welcome to turn there. But in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus walks on water. It's a very famous portion of uh, the New Testament scriptures. And as he's walking out to the disciples who are in the boat already, they're attempting to cross the Sea of Galilee. There's a a kind of storm that's brewing. The Sea of Galilee is pretty famous for these storms. And the disciples are struggling against the storm. And Jesus is just kind of calmly walking out to them. And as they see him, they call out to him. And Peter is even invited to come out to Jesus. And he, he walk, he gets out of the boat and doesn't make it very far. If you remember, he falls down and Jesus has to save him. But when Jesus and Peter get back into the boat, the, the storm immediately stops. And so not only is he walking on water, which is this whole other thing, but when he gets back in the boat, the storm just stops. And the response to those who were in the boat, the response of those who have been around Jesus for months and years even up to this point, it says that they worshipped him. Immediately, they stopped what they were doing and they worshipped. And Matthew says that they said at this point, truly, you are the son of God. This was the response to Jesus over and over. This was the response even to the one who was at the cross and saw him die. Truly, this man was the Son of God. When they saw what he did, they knew who he was. So in our text today, Isaiah does something similar for us. He goes into a lot of details concerning God, concerning the Lord who is to come, concerning his attributes, his power, his authority, and our own difficulty in grasping and understanding these things. And our text today is probably one of the most powerful and clear testimony concerning the character of God, concerning his ability, his attributes, especially when comparing those things to man. In this world, people oftentimes get those things confused. You know, what man is able to do and what God is able to do. Because, well, we, we worship false idols. We want God to be a thing that he's not. We want ourselves to be a thing that we're not. We see this kind of thing in Isaiah's day, and again, obviously, we see this kind of thing in our own world. 
Though we don't see a whole lot of worshiping of physical idols today that is happening in some parts of the world, obviously, but we see people worshiping all sorts of other things that they think can give them power and security over time. Isaiah destroys each one of those idols. He shows us that the Lord alone is the everlasting God. And so as we dive into this, I want to break it up into three parts. The creator of the world, ruler of the nations, and then lastly, keeper of promises. And so with that, look with me at the text. Isaiah chapter 40, starting at verse 12. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Isaiah 40, starting at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not, would not suffice for fuel for, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and and casts for it silver chains. He is too impoverished for an offering, chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of earth as emptiness, Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall be shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated.
So as we get into this second part of Isaiah chapter 40, context is very important here. Remember, last week we saw this dramatic shift in tone in the book of Isaiah, going from a historical narrative which prophesied the coming exile of Babylon, and then going to Isaiah being commanded to preach comfort and pardon to the people of Israel as they face this difficult time ahead. They were going to go into exile, and Isaiah was commanded to comfort them, to preach pardon to them. There we find the promise of the Lord coming to bring these things himself. Remember, Isaiah said to make a highway in the wilderness. And they pointed these things directly to Jesus. He's the ultimate fulfillment of these prophecies. So starting in verse 12, we have kind of a, the way I like to look at this is a guarantee. Well, Isaiah is showing us who is able to keep these promises and what is he like. It's kind of a guarantee, answering the question, how can we know that these things are going to come to pass? We touched a little bit on this last week, but honestly... We need this kind of assurance all the time. It's good for us. You know, when I buy a new tool, I like to know the reputation of the company that sold it. Do they have a reputation for making good things or not so good things? I don't want to buy things that aren't going to work. And so Isaiah, for for us, because we need this sort of thing, lays out for us the reputation of God who would bring comfort and pardon in these verses. And so with that, look with me at verse 12 as we hear the first point, the creator of the world. Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? If you look at these word pictures, it's pretty incredible. It brings to mind a, a skilled craftsman who is measuring and marking off things, perfectly doing so, weighing everything so that they're perfectly balanced. But the things that he's marking and weighing are things that are so immense and big that we can't even, can't even comprehend. You know, you think about the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. You know, just like getting out a little bit of water in your hand. I did some digging and the earth has approximately 3,100 cubic miles of water. That's a pretty big cube. That's a lot of water. Obviously, Isaiah isn't pointing to us so that we so that we can know the size of God's physical hands because God doesn't have physical hands. That would be a very big hand. The picture is here for us to see the immensity, the power of God, of one who can just scoop with his hands and all of the waters of the earth are in it. And my hand maybe has two tablespoons. And it's not even a really good measuring device. It would leak all over the place. It's just not a good thing. That's why they make like measuring spoons. But for God, he measured out all the waters. I mean, you just, fat, just think about that for a little bit. We get, we get the idea that the earth is made perfectly. That there is balance and harmony in everything that he has done. He marked off the heavens. He enclosed the dust. He weighed the mountains. All these things that point to God as being someone and something that we can't even hardly wrap our heads around. And so he follows this with, verse verse 13, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? 
Whom did he consult and, and who made him to understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? This is obviously no one's done these things. Who measured the Spirit of the Lord? A better way of thinking about this is probably who directed the Spirit of the Lord? Paul uses the uh, Septuagint when he, he quotes from this in Romans chapter 11. He says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who shows him counsel? Who's, who's, who is the Lord going to? And the Lord has a problem. He's like, you know what? I really need some help on this. Who, who's he going to? Nobody. He, he doesn't need help at all. The idea here is, is that when God was measuring the oceans and weighing the mountains, there wasn't someone for him to consult on these operations because he didn't need to. When I decide I'm going to make something, I have to go like watch a YouTube video or I have to read a thing and then I have to mess it up really badly the first time and learn from my mistakes and then I can do it again and be like, okay, I know where I messed up now. God doesn't have to do those things. He has an innate knowledge of all the things because he spoke them into existence. He knows these things. He has the power to do whatever he sets his mind to do. This is important for us today, church, because it's very easy for us to get caught up into thinking that we have some of this kind of power as well. Now, there are extreme examples of this, of course, of people thinking they have some sort of innate power. And most of us aren't here, but I'll give you this extreme example anyway, just to show you the ridiculousness of it. When the pandemic started back about a year ago, there were a few TV pastors whose names probably would recognize if I said them. They made a video of themselves and they were um, shouting at the pandemic, at a virus, to stop. They were commanding it even. They were commanding a a virus. I I command you COVID-19 to be gone. These were humans shouting into a camera at a virus. But you know, virus is basically just this non-thinking, non-living, biochemical computer program. Can't hear them. They even said the words, I execute judgment on you, COVID-19. As if COVID-19 would be watching and thinking, oh, well, he seems to mean business. (laughs) Perhaps we should rethink what we're doing here. Obviously, don't get me wrong. Anyone, anyone who's a thinking person can watch that and realize that they're, what they're seeing is a circus act. But the same people who would watch that and think that's ridiculous would also worry about the virus. Or worry about a thunderstorm. Or other natural things. As if by worrying, we could somehow make it go away and feel better about the whole thing. Remember what Jesus said, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Because worrying is no different than me shouting at something saying, go away now. Listen, worrying is me thinking I can somehow change the world by just thinking about it a whole lot and making myself upset. All that energy that we use to worry and fret doesn't change a single thing about the world around us. But the one that we worship, he walked on water. He, he just with a thought, the storm stopped. It said when he got into the boat, the storm ceased. It was kind of this, 
you know, I should probably turn the storm off too. And did it. He measured 3,100 cubic miles of water in the palm of his hand. And we worry about a few inches of rain and a little bit of wind. This is an issue, obviously, that goes far deeper than worry about viruses and storms and whatever else. It underlies the fact that maybe we don't trust the Lord like we should. We trust Him and we're singing and we're praying and we're reading our Bibles and we're sitting here together and everything's all nice. But we don't trust Him when it comes to our livelihoods. We don't trust Him when it comes to our health. We don't trust Him when it comes to our futures or maybe our kids' futures. In those areas, what we really need is for Him to step aside and let us take the reins because obviously we know it's best. I mean, if you think about this, this is a real real heart issue. If you think about this in the broader context of what Isaiah is doing in his ministry, what is he doing? He's preaching to a people who are taken away from everything that they know and they love. And he's showing him that they have no cause to fear or worry because they worship one who is bigger and stronger than anything they could possibly ever dream up or imagine. And he's definitely bigger than any one of them, all of them combined. As if their worrying and their fretting is going to change anything that he would do. He's bigger and stronger than anything, or as he's going to show us in the text, any nation. That brings us to the second point, the ruler of the nations. Look with me at verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands, like fine dust. And so the image kind of shifts here, like the drop from a bucket or dust on the scales, and we have this picture of a marketplace. And so imagine someone going to an ancient Near Eastern market and they're selling their things or whatever it is that they've brought to sell. Maybe they've brought milk to sell or grain or something like that. And as they put the buckets of milk up onto the scale, a little bit of milk, like maybe a drop, splashes out of the bucket. Does the seller care about that single drop? Are they thinking, hmm, really wish that wouldn't have happened? No, it's just a drop. There's nothing substantial about it. It doesn't really change the way that they do anything. And the same goes with the dust on the scale. Does, before each person comes up and weighs their grain, do they, do they perfectly dust the scale as if, as if one half of a gram of dust is going to make a difference when you're selling several hundred pounds of grain? No. It's insignificant. It makes no difference. I mean, look at verse 16 when he comes to, he gave names a nation. Lebanon, an entire nation, would not suffice for fuel. Nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. The entire nation. It's just not substantial. Verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him they are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness now we have to be careful here because he's not saying that man is unimportant man is creating the image of god all men and women are have inherent dignity because they have a creator that gave that to them they are the image of their creator yet when it comes to the nations of the world they are insignificant when it comes to the purposes and the plans of God. 
God has purposed the nations of the world all throughout history. They rise and fall according to his divine decree. If you read through a very large section of the book that we've already went through, verse or chapters 13 through 27, you get this, this very picture. He names a bunch of nations, and then he talks about how he's going to judge them and how they're going to come and they're going to go. They are all his workmanship. They are all his to build up and break down. When we see the image of the dust on the scales in the marketplace, comparing to comparing that dust as being insignificant and that being an entire nation, it should drive us then to the one who made that nation. Not to the nation itself. Who wants to worship the speck of dust? Yet, so many times we worship that speck of dust or that drop from the bucket instead, thinking that it actually has some sort of control over our comfort and our security, our eternal salvation. And yes, the nation that we live in, or any person lives in, has lots of control over them in their person and their day-in-day lives. They set laws, they provide services, they tax our money, they, they give us things, they take things from us, whatever it is. In fact, God's word says that governments and nations provide a very important function in the way that he governs his creation. It's important. Yet at the end of the day, in the ultimate picture, those nations with all their laws and customs and cultures and everything, all their distinctiveness, all of them are insignificant when it comes to God's divine decree. The nations themselves have no power to influence God's hand, direct his steps, or to change his mind. So why do we think that? Why do we give so much power to nations and to the rulers of nations? Why do we let them give us so much anxiety and concern and worry? Why do we let them do that to us? Why do we give the leaders of those nations some kind of godlike status, somehow thinking that if, if we could just get the right one in power, maybe all would be good, and if the wrong one is in power, all is going to be lost, as if they hold in their hands the scales of the earth. It makes no sense. It's giving too much power to, to one person, and that person that we give that much power to, of course they eat that up. They love it. Now, am I suggesting that we be apathetic to the government, that we don't do our part in making the nation better to see God glorified here? Absolutely not. I'm not saying that at all. But when it comes to our eternal destiny, when it comes to our hope, we aren't going to find it in a nation at all, ever. We're going to find it in the Lord Himself. When we attempt to find hope by seeking control over our circumstances, whether it be our nation, whether it be some other sense of security that we have, that thing becomes an idol. And that's Isaiah goes right to that, verses 18 through 20. To whom then will you liken God? Or to what likeness will you compare him? And he says, an idol. He's like, this is what you're trying to do. Craftsman casts it. Goldsmith overlays it with gold. Casts silver chains on it. Heaves two impoverished for an offering. Just makes one that's made out of wood. That will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to build this thing that will not move. Why do we do this? It doesn't move because it can't. It's dust on the scales. It's water in the hands of the Creator. It's nothing compared to Him. So then church, believers, or if you're here and you're non-believer, the question is for you too, where do you put your hope? 
That brings us to the next point, the keeper of the promises. Isaiah enters into this section where he helps the readers kind of come to grips with the thing that they should have known all along. Verse 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? It's kind of a rhetorical question that we might say to someone as if we walked outside and found one of these people walking on the sidewalk and said, hey, have you not seen the sky? Did you not know the sky was blue? It's kind of a rhetorical question. It's a silly thing to even ask. Of course we all know that that's the case. These things have been revealed. These things should be all plain to us. To anyone who has two eyes and two ears, we should know these things, should we not? Of course the sky is blue. And if you see, you see him kind of reiterating these things in verses 22 and following. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth an emptiness. He's reiterating these things that he's already mentioned. And so then look at verse 27. Think about this. We, this these things that we should know, these things that should be plain to us. And then he asks the question of the people of Israel. And he asks the question of us today. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by God? My way is hidden from the Lord. You know, all these things, all these things I'm concerned about, all these things I'm worried about, obviously God's forgotten about me. Before we move on, it's important here for us to see this. My way is hidden from the Lord. This word, Lord, the same that he uses in verse 28, is what the Old Testament, or writers of the New Testament, as they read this, they would have been reading this in the Greek. This is the same word that they would use to refer to Jesus as they were writing. This is the same word that they used at the beginning of chapter 40. It talks about the Lord who was going to come to earth. Has the Lord, Jesus, has he forgotten his people? So, my way is hidden from the Lord. After we just read all of those amazing things, why would we then say, why doesn't the Lord hear me? Why doesn't he see me? When we say those things, or we act as if that question is something that we're thinking about, we expose our lack of faith. Of course he sees us. Of course he hears us. Go back to the very beginning, those first few verses. What does he want for us? He wants comfort. He wants pardon. Does that mean that we won't go through difficult things in life? No, he's going to lead us right through those difficult things. He's getting ready to lead Israel through a very difficult time. Doesn't mean that at all. Does that mean then that God cares less about us? Well, he obviously cares about the people who never have anything difficult, but he doesn't care as much about me who's having all this difficulty. No, that's not the case at all either. How could he possibly care less about us? He has he sent his very spirit to us as a guarantee that he will keep his promises to us 
How could he possibly care less? For him to care less about us is for him to deny himself. And so how does Isaiah respond to our lack of faith? How does he respond to this question that he poses to us today? Verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? You who worries, you who thinks you can control your circumstances, have you not even heard this? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. And if you think at all, well, that's that's not me. Well, if you think, well, that's not me. Well, verse 30, even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall be exhausted. You need your faith to be tested? Well, it's coming. And for those times, he has a word for us. Verse 31, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It's as if we could just maybe even take a little drink of water from that well and be ready to take it, take on the, the, word, the world again. Well, that's not it at all. Jesus isn't this thing that we just kind of partake of when we feel like we need him. He's not our sidekick. He's our very livelihood. He is our sustainer and he is our redeemer. We can't do anything without him. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. When the disciples saw that he could walk on water and the winds and the waves obeyed him, what did they do? They worshiped because what else could you do if you saw that? What are we doing when we hear these plain words from Isaiah the prophet here this morning? So we hear about our Lord. Why would we ever worry? Why would we ever trust in anything else? This Jesus isn't just our creator, but he came so that he might save his people from their sins. He came and offered himself as a sacrifice so that we might have pardon. I mean, if you go back to verse 1 of chapter 40, what does he say? Comfort, comfort my people. My people. Speak tenderly to her. Cry to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. How can he say that our warfare is ended? How can he say that our iniquity is pardoned? Because he came and he did that. He ended it. He pardoned our iniquity. He defeated those enemies, sin and death. He put them away for all eternity. He nailed them to the cross. And in that we can find comfort, brothers and sisters in Christ. The one who measured the oceans in his hands gathers us to himself that we might have comfort and forgiveness. And so in conclusion, the question for you, particularly if you're here and this, this is new, maybe you're an unbeliever, maybe you've struggled with this for years, I don't know. Do you believe these things to be true? 
the God who considers the nations as dust, also came to this earth, gave his life that you might have eternal life. And what are his conditions? Repent and believe. Have you done that? Repent of your sins, those things that separate you from him. Turn to him. Call upon the name of Jesus Christ and you can be saved. But for those of us who are believers, what's the call for us? Trust in him. Have you not heard? The Lord Jesus Christ is the everlasting God. He calls you his own. Call out to him and find rest today. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we need to be shown really plainly because sometimes we act as if we've never seen or heard the truth that you are the everlasting God. Lord, please help us. Change us that we would be renewed. Change us that we might know you better, that we might trust in you more. And not only this, Lord, help us to show a dying world that there is no other place where they might find hope. It's in your name we pray. Amen.